0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a Crime Story podcast. I'm your host, Kaylin Lois, and I am so excited to have you here with me today. I just wanted to give a big thank you to you, my listeners, whether I know you personally or you're just a stranger. I really appreciate all the positive feedback I'm receiving on this podcast. Um, Suggestions you have or a case suggestion, I just... It makes me so happy, so thank you, thank you, thank you. Just a reminder, you can listen to a Crime Story podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, the website Podbean, my website, or even YouTube where you can even see more photos of today's case. Um, You can also follow along on Instagram where you can see photos of today's case, and I would love it if you could comment on Instagram about what you think of the cases. It would be really nice if we can have a discussion. Without further ado, let's just hop in to today's crime story. Today's crime story takes place in Brazil, and as always, let's begin by talking about the legal system. The system operates as a multifaceted system on state and federal levels, much like the United States. Based on the civil law system, different jurisdictions of the law, including labor, electoral, military, constitutional, and non-constitutional, law exists, and there's four different types of courts. The federal, labor, electoral, and military help dispense justice. So, officially called the Federative Republic of Brazil, it is the largest geographic area in both South America and Latin America. Brazil has a population of just over 200 million, And Portuguese is spoken, not Spanish, in Brazil because of the 1492 Treaty of Torsales, which gave Portugal the right to colonize Brazil. Known as a melting pot of different cultures and ethnicities, the World Bank classifies Brazil as an upper-middle income economy, but Brazil still remains a developing country. Brazil has the largest wealth in Latin America and is an advanced emerging economy and it is the ninth largest GDP in the world. One of my best friends is actually from Brazil. I met her here in Paris last year and every Brazilian I've ever met are the sweetest people ever. Our crime story begins in Sao Paulo, Brazil. The city is known as Brazil's financial center, with a population of 12 million swelling over to 30 million inhabitants, when including the greater area. Located in the south and next to the Atlantic Ocean, San Paulo honestly looks like a really cool city that I would love to visit one day. <music> Our cast of characters begins on the upper class streets of San Paolo with Manfred von Richthofen, a German-born engineer, and his wife, Maurizia, who was Brazilian of Lebanese descent. Opposites attract because Manfred was described as shy, a loner, he just really kept to himself, whereas Mauricia was described as bubbly, charismatic, and a social butterfly. Manfred worked as the director of the state company for highway development in São Paulo, Brazil. And Maurizio worked as a renowned psychiatrist. They were phenomenally successful in life. And the couple lived in a large house. They owned nice cars and are believed to be worth about $5 million United States dollars. For the von Richthofens, education came first. Neighbors state that they just kind of kept to themselves. They really didn't throw parties and they came off as very serious and intellectual. According to this mystique, Manfred claimed to be related to Manfred von Richthofen, a famed German World War I air ace, better known as the Red Baron of World War I. But the German von Richthofen family just denies this. Manfred and Maurizia had two children, Suzanne, who was born in 1983, and Andreas, who was born four years later. The couple sent their children to the best schools and made sure that Suzanne and Andreas took their education seriously. By the age of 18, Suzanne could speak four languages, Portuguese, Spanish, English, and German, and she earned a brown belt, which is just under a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, and she had been accepted into a Catholic university to study law. Andres loved model airplanes. His passion did not impress his friends and classmates, though. And one day, he met another plane model aficionado, a boy named Daniel who Daniel did not come from the upper echelon of San Paulo, though. Instead, Daniel was older. He was about 21. He was wild, a drug user, and raised in a pretty rough neighborhood. Not only did Andres hit it off with Daniel as they bonded over model airplanes, but Suzanne thought Daniel was the bee's knees, and soon the two started dating. At first, Manfred and Maurizia really didn't mind the relationship. They liked him. They thought he was nice. I mean, how much trouble can a young man who loves model airplanes be, right? <laughs> but then the parents discovered that Daniel smoked weed. And when I say he smoked weed, he smoked it like 24-7. Also, he didn't have a job and he wasn't going to school. Daniel definitely did not fit the kind of guy that Manfred and Maritza wanted their daughter to date. Most of us can guess what Suzanne's reaction was. She did not care. <laughs> she just continued to date Daniel and started using drugs with him. She would sneak out of the house to be with him, and she even lost her virginity to the bad boy. Suzanne loved her newfound freedom and the rush that the relationship with Daniel gave her. Daniel, 21 and Suzanne, 18, soon found drugs much stronger than weed, and they both started huffing paint thinner and glue, as well as dropping ecstasy. Daniel loved that Suzanne had money, and Suzanne had lots of money. She was known to, like, give gifts to her friends, and that's what she did to Daniel. She gifted him with lavish gifts and cash, and Daniel thought this was his ticket to a better life. They both developed an unhealthy obsession for each other. In the spring of two thousand and two, Manfred and Maurizia went on a month-long holiday, and while their parents' vacation, Suzanne essentially moved Daniel into the family home. When her parents returned home, Suzanne asked them if they could buy her an apartment to live in with Daniel. Clearly, Suzanne misjudged the situation, because predictably, Manfred and Maurizia's reaction was like most normal parents. And by issuing a hard hell no to their daughter's suggested living arrangements. (laughs) Going even a step further, the parents even banned Suzanne from dating Daniel and even threatened to cut off Suzanne's finances if she did not comply to this rule. Just as predicted, this only caused... Suzanne to become sneakier and fueled her desire for Daniel. The young couple just simply continued to see each other behind Manfred and Maurizio's back. On the night of October 31st, 2002, Daniel and Suzanne helped Andreas sneak out of the family home and drove him to a cyber cafe to play video games and hang out with friends. Apparently, Andreas did this a lot because there was spotty internet in Brazil at this time, so this was nothing really out of the ordinary. At some point, Daniel and Suzanne left to go pick up Daniel's older brother, Christian, who was 26 years old. Apparently, what what happened next was planned for months. Some sources say six months, others I looked at said two months, but The crime was premeditated, nonetheless. Suzanne could have backed out at any time, but when DJ came, she just participated eagerly. They already deactivated the house alarm and the security cameras at the family home. Then they took drugs to numb their emotions, pulled their hoods up on their jackets over their heads, and also placed stockings on their heads, and gloves on their hands to eliminate any DNA transfer. Suzanne went upstairs to check that on her parents and make sure that they were sleeping and then came back down the stairs to let Christian and Daniel know that her parents were indeed asleep and that they just needed to go and handle it. Suzanne sat on the couch while the two brothers went upstairs. In the weeks prior to the event, the boys made iron bars and now they carry these iron bars as they ascended up the stairs to Maurizia Manfred's bedroom. Daniel went to Manfred's side of the bed while Christian went to Maurizia's side of the bed. They started swinging the iron bars on their heads while they were sleeping. Christian allegedly had second thoughts at this time, and he began to cry, stating that he just couldn't go through it, like he just couldn't kill someone, he couldn't commit murder, and Daniel told him, like, man up and he just continued to beat Manfred, and while Christian got over his moral misgivings, he followed suit with Maurizia. The two brothers continued to beat Manfred and Maurizia over and over on the head while Suzanne remained downstairs on the couch listening to her parents being murdered. Now Manfred and Mauritia were fighters and they did not die from their head getting beaten by an iron rod. Reports differed whether they screamed and they yelled or they cried out while others speculate that this sound could have just been a death rattle which is a horrific noise that a person makes as they're dying because they can no longer swallow or cough. Thinking Manfred and Maurizia were still alive, Daniel ran to the bathroom to get wet towels to put over the victims' faces in an effort to drown or suffocate them. The two brothers also tried to strangle the parents with the towels, and Maurizia still would not die, so they took a plastic bag and put it over her head. The von Richthofen's fought, and they fought. They were just holding on for dear life. And Daniel went downstairs to grab a jug of water in like an effort to waterboard them and eventually drown Manfred and Mauritia. While well, these events unfolded. Suzanne Remay downstairs and tried to make it look like a break-in that caused a murder. She threw papers around the house, slit open a briefcase and took money from it. She even took jewelry and other valuables in an attempt to make it look like a robbery that had just gone awry. After which, Suzanne finally went upstairs to the room where her parents' now lifeless bodies laid in their bed. And Suzanne brought a bag with her and collected Daniel and Christian's bloody clothes. And she handed them the money she took earlier from the briefcase To and handed it to Christian, thanking him for his troubles for murdering her parents and asking them to never speak about what just happened. Before they left, these geniuses decided to place a gun next to Manfred. I guess they wanted to make it look like a suicide, but apparently they've forgotten that the von Richthofens weren't shot. Their heads were bashed in, their necks were strangled, and they were waterboarded. All things that considered are quite hard to do on themselves. Like, there was no gunshot, so why did they place a gun next to his hand? Makes no sense. And not to mention, there was a staged break-in scene downstairs. After the crime, the threesome tried to establish some sort of alibi. So they checked into a hotel, the Presidential Suite, by the way, and Christian then left to get some fast food from a restaurant, making sure that he appeared on camera and that he had a receipt. Around 3 a.m., Suzanne left the hotel to go pick up her brother at the Cyber Cafe, and they headed home. What happened next, like, just really irks me and makes me so mad. She manipulated the situation so that Andreas, her 15-year-old brother, would see his dead parents. No one can get over the fact of finding their parents dead and murdered in such an awful way. It was just a self-absorbed psychopath that Suzanne was that she allowed her brother to find them and to even see them dead. So Suzanne and Andreas called the police and Andreas is obviously distraught and Suzanne is trying to like play up this grieving daughter role and they tell the police that someone broke in and killed their parents. The police immediately sniffed out the stage scene with the papers like methodically placed to just looked too perfect and not as if someone just rummaged through the papers. Not to mention money was lying around the house and the robbers left a gun next to the victim. Not a murder-suicide situation, so why would the robbers leave a gun? Also, there were no signs of forced entry and the scene just simply didn't add up. The day after the police find her parents bludgeoned to death, the egocentric Suzanne throws herself a nineteenth birthday party in the pool in the backyard. Imagine showing up as a guest to this party and being like, "Oh yeah, two people were murdered upstairs yesterday, and they were her parents." Like, let's party! <laughs> a total ten on the creep attune meter. Like. How can you even, like, celebrate your friend's 19th birthday? Sorry. As Manfred and Maurizio's funeral, Suzanne dressed inappropriately, donning, like, a super short skirt and a crop top. She cried like there was no tomorrow in the overly dramatic manner, putting on a show and, like, a huge scene so that everyone could see not lost on the police who remembered that Suzanne failed to shed a single tear the night that her parents were found dead. Police had the number one suspect in their eyes. Investigators started to follow Suzanne, Christian, and Daniel. A couple days after the murder, Christian went and bought an expensive motorcycle in all $100 bills. Now, Christian did not have a job, His family had no money, so where did Christian get this money for an expensive motorcycle? It just didn't make sense. So this is when investigators decided to make an arrest. Christian first, followed by Daniel and Suzanne. The police separated them and the interrogations began. Suzanne broke down nearly immediately and confessed to killing her parents. This is when the media in Brazil went nuts and salivated to get the inside scoop. A beautiful, blonde, well-educated rich girl with a poor, drug-addicted thug-boyfriend. The contrast between Suzanne's affluent upbringing and the gruesomeness of the crime both shocked and fascinated the Brazilian public. Suzanne made the equivalent to bail and while she awaited trial. She did not remain silent and instead gave an interview on a major talk show in Brazil. She tried to play the victim, blaming Daniel for the whole affair, and stated, I didn't know anything. I'm the victim. Yada, yada, yada. But behind the scenes, as the camera was rolling, Suzanne's attorney was coaching her. Their attorney told Suzanne to make sure you cry, cry loud, and cry hard because people will believe you and they will feel sorry for you. Well, the public opinion <laughs> rapidly changed among the Brazilians and who initially believed her side of the story and they just changed their minds as this TV interview aired. People now hated Suzanne and wanted to see her burn for what happened to her parents. While awaiting trial, people spray-painted derogatory turns on her house, they pelted rocks at her, and the media just crucified her. Suzanne did not remain out of custody for long because investigators found the gun hidden in her teddy bear and feared that she might kill her younger brother, Andreas. In 2006, nearly four years after the murder, Suzanne, Christian, and Daniel all went on trial. Charged with the American equivalent to first-degree murder, this event became the Brazilian OJ trial. It was that big. Everyone, and I mean everyone in Brazil, wanted to know the ongoings and the most recent Revelations, firsthand dirt, and people even waited outside of the courthouse in hopes to watch the events unfold. Suzanne doubled down on her awful TV performance and blamed Daniel Carbonaros for everything, while the Carbonaros brothers claimed that they acted upon her desire. Suzanne played the victim card hard. <laughs> Honestly, I do not see this as a bad defense, given the circumstances. Already seen as a scum in society, attorneys could frame Christian and Daniel as drug-addicted demons in need of money, while presenting Suzanne as a petite, pretty, immature, and innocent schoolgirl who got bamboozled by these older boys. The defense made Suzanne appear younger than her age by having her put colorful clips and hairbands in her hair, and they even dressed her in a Mickey Mouse shirt. Even though she was like nearly 25 at the time, they wanted her to appear younger. Daniel and Christian presented Suzanne as the cunning mastermind. They told a wild story of how Manfred and Maurizia were alcoholics who beat both Suzanne and Andreas, and most egregiously, they stated how Manfred sexually assaulted Suzanne and that Maurizia knew about it. The jury saw through these lies, and on July 22, 2006, they found all three guilty of first-degree murder. The jury saw through the colorful clips and the Mickey Mouse shirt and saw her as the mastermind sentencing Suzanne to 40 years in prison and Daniel and Christian to 38 years. After the trial in 2009, uh, Suzanne appealed and asked for house arrest, claiming that she was no longer presented as a danger to society. Yeah, (laughs) I don't get that either. The Brazilian courts denied the petition, thankfully, rightly so in my opinion, in 2011, Andreas sued Suzanne for half of the inheritance. I mean, can we just make it a law that if you kill someone, you don't get their money? Makes sense. But Brazil's laws allowed for Suzanne to get the money once she was out of jail. So, like, she had something to look forward to. But thankfully, Andres won this claim and he now has all of the inheritance. In 2014, Suzanne married a fellow inmate while in prison. Her wife, who I could only find her last name, Gomez, is in prison for the role in her death of a kidnapped child. I guess they're the perfect pair. I mean, there's someone for everyone out there. In 2018, the justice system denied Suzanne's request for freedom stating that her egocentrism and narcissistic personality disorder posing serious questions as whether she would be able to integrate back into society. Suzanne still remains in prison outside of San Paulo today and is stated for release if she serves her whole sentence in 2046. Now, this case just seems like a whole cliche to me. A girl from the right side of the tracks who meets a bad boy parents object and she gets her boyfriend to kill him. Suzanne in my opinion masterminded the whole crime and she had the most to gain from her parents death. Money and freedom to be with her boyfriend. Basically everything that she ever had wanted. Suzanne had so much going for her and she just decided to throw it all away and perhaps I guess that provides the best reason to why this case just fascinates me so much. I mean, I only found out about this case like a couple weeks ago and I just couldn't stop researching it. I think Suzanne roped Christian and Daniel into her scheme and I don't think that they had the brains or the desire to say no. Drugs change thinking patterns and what seems unthinkable suddenly becomes thinkable. Either way, if Daniel suggested it to Suzanne or Suzanne suggested it to Daniel and Christian agreed, it's still a horrific crime to commit and my heart breaks for Andreas who lost his whole family because his sister wanted sex, drugs, and freedom. All very important long-term goals, not... She simply could have, like, run away or gotten a job to support herself and her drug habit and her desire to be with Daniel. Even though it will never make up for the loss of his parents, I'm so glad that Andreas won the entirety of Manfred and Maurizio's estate. I would love to hear your thoughts on this case. Do you think Suzanne was the mastermind? What do you think that televised interview? And does your heart break for Andre's? Because I know mine does. That concludes the fourth episode of A Crime Story. I would love to hear your thoughts on today's case. You can comment on a Crime Stories Instagram at a Crime Story Pod, where again I will be posting images from today's story. Or you can comment on a Crime Story podcast on Facebook or a Crime Story pod on Twitter. Or you can even comment and see additional photos on a Crime Story podcast on YouTube. I also have a website where you can listen to the podcast as well as read a transcript of today's story under the blog tab. The website URL is a acrimestorypodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. If you could please leave a review, it helps others find the podcast. Also, if you could tell a friend about a crime story, I would really appreciate it. I hope to see you next time where we will travel back to France for a crazy story and honestly, this story and the story I covered in the first episode was the reason I wanted to start this podcast, so you really won't want to miss this episode. A Crime Story is hosted and written by me, Kaylin Lois. Sources for today's episode can be found in the show's notes. Theme music is by Ross Budgen. Additional story editing is brought to you by my father, Mike. Francois Tardivol, my boyfriend, helps me produce the show. Thank you so much for listening to a crime story. I can't wait to hear from you next week. And remember to stay safe and be kind. Bye. <laughs>